Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Welcome to Eloquentia perfecta ex machina, a podcast series devoted to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a range of media and focused on the writing program at St. Louis University. On this podcast, we interview instructors about how and why they use multimodal approaches, and we have instructors interview other instructors about the nuts and bolts of particular tools and assignments. In this week's episode, Sheree Langenstein interviews third-year PhD student Rachel Lynn Shields about how her research in the medieval digital humanities shapes her approaches to teaching first-year writing. They discuss, among other things, what it means to be a digital native, techniques for introducing students to the history of academic resource organization, and the importance of tangible objects in the classroom, from rare books to sea otter puppets. Hello, my name is Cherie Langenstein, and I'm a third-year PhD student in writing, rhetoric, and composition here at SLU. And I'm here today with my fellow graduate student, Rachel Shields. Welcome, Rachel. (laughs) Good morning, Cherie. Yeah, hi, I'm Rachel Lynn Shields. I'm also a PhD student at SLU. My focus is literature and I'm specifically studying medieval literature. And I've been spending a lot of time this term looking at um, manuscripts and learning Latin. And um, that's part of what we're gonna talk about today. That's really cool. There's something, I don't know, just about the term medieval that always kind of, you know, sparks my interest, you know, um, because it seems so, I don't know, kind of removed from our current times. So to be doing research on medieval times, um, I just you know, think it's fascinating. I think that part of why it interests me is I feel like it's not as removed as people often think that it is. And I don't mean in the sense that um, we're all just about to live like people of that period, but I think there's a <laughs> lot of, <laughs> yes, I think there's a lot of stuff from that time period that's actually really interesting still today. And I, and again, I think this relates to our topic because part of the point of the thing that I'm going to discuss later is that the way we write and the way we create text and you know, digital documents is actually not as far away from the way that that happened during the Middle Ages as people often think. <laughs> That's really interesting. Well, as you know, in this podcast, we focus on writing pedagogy. And lately within our new pandemic environment, we've been talking a lot about digital pedagogy. So my understanding is that you've done some really interesting research and developed some innovative teaching approaches to teaching writing. Uh, to students who are the so-called digital natives, um, specifically supporting digital research. So maybe we could begin by you telling us a little bit about digital natives. We've all heard that term, but why is it important in the context of your writing pedagogy? Yeah, so first of all, I'm going to reveal my age um, because I think this is relevant to this conversation. So I I was born in the early 80s, so what is early I'm 50 years old so I was born in the 70s (laughs) well there you there you go right so you live through these things too but um so because of the age that I am I I sort of have a leg in both eras um so when I was in elementary school they taught us how to use the library card catalog so we learned how to look through those long skinny drawers that you had to pull out of the big cabinet um and search for different subjects 
And then by the time I finished elementary school, we were doing all of this in the digital realm. So, um, so I, basically as soon as I learned how to use the card catalog, they switched us over to the digital version of the card catalog. Um, so I think my first, the sort of the first part of my answer to this question is that um, I have realized that many people who are digital natives, and when I say digital natives, I generally mean people who didn't get the physical card catalog, people who started <laughs> with the online databases system and um, being able to search for things using Google, that kind of stuff. Um, one of the big differences I have found between those digital natives and people like myself or like you is that they have no memory of the paper version of things. Um, they started out using the digital library system. They, um, they may not have any sense even that there was an earlier system in existence. <laughs> um, so another equivalent like in music, um, I think this doesn't work quite as well because people still know what records are. Um, but you know, like I had a tape deck when I was a kid and then I had a, a you know, like a CD player um, I had various kinds of CD players. And then, you know, now I mostly just use computer, like music on my computer. Um, and there's no, like there is a physical object where it's kept, but I'm not really seeing that it's out of sight. And with a lot of my students, they never saw that thing on a physical object. They never had a tape player, a disc man, <laughs> you know, any of these things. Have you seen the movie, The Guardians of the Galaxy? I have, yes. And the mixtape? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I used to make mixtapes when I was much younger. <laughs> Hopefully our audience will understand this. Just last night, I was driving my daughter home from swim practice, and we were playing, you know, the music that I have. That we're playing it through my Bluetooth from my phone. Right. Playing my daughter's favorite music. She's 11, and, um, and she wants, right now, she's in a phase where she wants to be an astronaut, and I was talking to her about making a mixtape for her. Right. Um, and she had no idea what that was until we started talking about Guardians of the Galaxy, and then it, like, made sense to her suddenly. Oh! She's like, that weird thing that he uses in that movie. Yeah, so I think even my generation was often called digital natives, but I think that there's a difference between somebody who like knows that tapes exist and somebody who has only seen tapes in a movie, barely understands how they're used or what they are exactly, and is used to everything sort of being in the cloud or being like, and again, like these things, I mean, they all live on servers. They do live on a physical device somewhere but it's really divorced from the way that we interact with them. Exactly, yeah. Well, and um, I remember being quite a bit older than you even, um, yes. and neither of us being kind of the traditional age of uh, second and third year PhD students. Right. <laughs> um, I remember when I was in grade school, um, I was in a kind of a uh, gifted and talented program and when I was in like sixth and seventh grades, and it was a really big thing that the program was able to purchase um, the original like Macintosh computers yeah. and they were teaching us to just like plot you know square by square you know a picture but like very basic coding but that was revolutionary at the time yeah. Um, yeah. And, and writing has always been a big thing for me since I was a little kid but I will never forget how um, when I was in high school and my parents bought I don't know, it might have been like a Commodore 64 or, you know, some, you know, kind right. of old, you know. Yeah, we had one with computer. like green, green, <laughs> green text on it. I just yes. remember this, like, I remember this Looney Tunes, like, 
video game, which I think was like an educational spelling video game that was all like, it was really basically the equivalent of black and white. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but for me to actually start writing um, papers for my high school classes on a word processor and being able to like edit it as I go, as opposed to having to hand write it all out and turn it in, that, that was a huge thing for me. And that is actually what kind of turned me into a writer because I didn't really like it until then. Um, and, but like my kids have no concept of this at all. I, ha I have, I have, um, two kids in college right now and they have no idea of what it was like to have to, you know, code something in the very most basic language or to not, you know, have a computer. All of them have laptops or Chromebooks that they take with them yeah, everywhere they go. That's just totally normal. Yeah. yeah even my yeah. 11 year old has a Chromebook and that, you know, it's just expected. So... Oh, yeah, it was a big deal when I got a laptop for college. It was about two inches thick. It was just like a brick. Um, but yeah, so like going back to the idea of like how this connects to pedagogy and all of those things, um, at some point I realized that many of these digital things that we use, in spite of the fact that they feel very like separate from the way things look on paper or the way things were created in medieval manuscripts, that they're actually based on those forms. So there are a lot of things about how a Word document works, for example, that are not in any way natural. They're actually really similar to how, say, the Canterbury Tales, um, Chaucer's really famous work, is written out on the page. Um, you know, we're still in, in English reading um, from left to right. We're still reading from top to bottom. There are so many ways in which the digital documents that we're using actually predominantly function in the same way as their paper ancestors did. But the problem is that a lot of my students aren't familiar with those earlier versions of these things. And that puts them at a disadvantage when it comes to understanding the digital world. Because the digital world was created by people like me and you, um, who were familiar with newspapers and books and <laughs> all of these other forms um, that my students often are not very familiar with, actually. Right. I mean, a playlist is the modern version of a mixtape. It is. It is exactly like we're actually not as inventive. We are very inventive. Human beings are very inventive. But in a lot of ways, we are reinventing the wheel rather than creating something completely different. Um, and most of the digital environment that we're using right now was created by people who were familiar with um, mixtapes and with like the way newspapers were formatted historically and that kind of thing. And so it was very natural to them to carry over many of these formats into the digital environment without really questioning them or thinking about whether or not they could do something different with this medium. So then in, in teaching your students to write, you're also giving them a history lesson? Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, and specifically, um, so the area that I focused on um, was actually uh, digital research because I found that a lot of these things that we've been talking about um, were particularly challenging when it came to using library research resources like databases um, that have journal articles in them and online books and encyclopedia entries online. Because again, like these things, like I know what an encyclopedia is. When I was in elementary school, we used encyclopedias. We hauled them around. <laughs> um, but my students often don't really understand the features of those kinds of books. And since those features have all been translated into the library system, they're very confusing to a lot of my students. Um, so I realized that for many of them, it was very helpful actually to go back to the print version of these things before trying to figure out how to use the library databases to do their research for our 
first year composition classes at SLU. Really, that's really interesting. So how were you able to kind of go about that? Yeah, so I hit library stuff really hard <laughs> in spring 2020. Um, and this was this was pre-pandemic, um, but we continued some of it after it. So I did multiple sessions with a research librarian um, who talked about using databases and that kind of thing. But I also lurked in the basement of our library with my students on multiple other occasions. Um, having them familiarize themselves with newspapers and journals and books and various other things that are available to look at in person at the library. So for example, I had them look through books and find indexes and they got really attached. Many of them had not used that before <laughs> um, and they became very attached to them and then realized that lots of the entries in the library system have things that are really similar to a book index or a table of contents or other features that they found in books. Um, we also did a session with the Rare Books Librarian who showed them a bunch of old medical books. So things from, I don't think we had anything from the 1500s, but it was basically the 1600s through the 1800s. Um, so they looked through those books and saw how they were set up and how they were organized and that kind of thing. Um, again, to just kind of give them this sense of the the dance, <laughs> the historical dance of publishing, right? So we've got these really, really early print books and then moving toward, you know, forward into the current era, moving into the 1900s and the 20th century and, you know, and just sort of starting to understand how each time books have changed a bit, but they haven't really changed completely. And then sort of bringing that knowledge into looking at catalog entries and having them sort of recognize those features in a way that they didn't, because catalog entries just look like a huge pile of text. Um, and they were start, they were able at that point to recognize like, oh, this pile of text is the table of contents. This pile of text is the subjects within this book, you know? <laughs> like, we... <laughs> I, I'm thinking about that in the context of, you know, a card catalog, those, the cards contained um, you know, a heading, you could look by author, you could look right. by subject. Um, and, and it never occurred to me until I started learning about your research, you know, how easily for me that translated over into, you know, searching online. I could search by subject, I could search by author and title, um, because that was the way my brain had kind of been trained to recognize things and to look for things. Um, so I guess one of the things I'm curious about is, you know, how does that ultimately translate over you know digitally and then um how do are, are students readily able to recognize that pile of information as you put it or do we really need to kind of show them the way it was in order to help them understand the way that it is yeah so i do so yeah there's a couple of different answers to that um and i think that they really need more guidance in understanding what all of those elements mean so you can go my route and my route is very I mean, I'm very interested in manuscripts and I'm very interested in the transition from, from, from handwritten manuscripts to print manuscripts. And I'm also, on a side note, um, I also have an MFA in creative writing and I've done a lot of like art books projects and things like that. So I'm very interested in books and how they're constructed and the relationship between form and content. Obviously, that is something that's like a big focus for me and I don't mind going pretty deep on it with my students. But I also think that we just need to not overassume that digital natives can just navigate any digital thing we throw at them without lots of guidance. So 
I think that you can skip a lot of the stuff I did <laughs> if you're not interested in those things and just spend a lot more time like basically translating catalog entries and explaining how different parts of them function. I just think you should never assume that students can do library research in an effective way without a lot of, of translation and interpretation. And the kinds of things we're talking about now, I think are really useful for them to know. So for example, many of my students did not understand that the physical library is arranged by subject because they haven't used the cards that you've used, right? So one of the things I did with them is I actually just like, and again, this is hard because it's because it's COVID times, but I walked around the library with them. And we walked to an area of the library that had a lot of books on medical subjects. And we actually sort of tracked where the transitions were and where like sort of different focal points within that subject showed up on the shelves. Um, and they didn't know that they could just go to a section of the library and browse the books and find something that was of interest to their topic. Wow. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't understand that it was organized in a way to like encourage that because nobody had told them that. And so I think even just talking through it with us is helpful, even if you don't go quite as deep as I did. <laughs> well, who thought that, you know, we'd still be teaching the Dewey Decimal System, you know, but that's really what it is, right? That's what the digital stuff is, actually. They just can't see it because the organization is, the, the underlying like organization of all of it is hidden from them in some ways that I think make it really hard for them to see these connections. And I think those connections were much easier to see in the card catalog. So when we were kids, at least when I was a kid, I'm assuming you had maybe a similar experience of taking a quote unquote field trip to the <laughs> library and like having that kind of physical aesthetic experience of the library and you're doing that with your students. Do you think that that's, um, you know, the digital world is not as aesthetic as far as like actually touching things and, and you mm -hmm. know, the, the space, the physical space involved in it. Um, we're kind of this anomalous, you know, digital space in which we all exist now. And, and as you said, there, you know, they do actually, the files do actually exist on some piece of equipment, but we don't really right. envision it that way. It's on a cloud somewhere mm -mm. floating around. The organization is much less visible to us. And the, the reasoning, I think, is also much less clear. So do you think then that that's, I, I'm envisioning, well, since, since this year, uh, this semester, you know, we're, we're again in the pandemic, and I love that term that you coined pre-pandemic, um, <laughs> but uh, I hadn't, you know, I had a presentation from a librarian in my class, but it was again, you know, on Zoom. Um, what do you think about the, the necessity or, or the importance of actually having that kind of physical, you know, space? experience for your students does that really help them kind of understand and kind of reveal these this hidden organization so I really think it does and I say this as somebody who likes online education like I'm actually enjoying the class that I'm teaching this term which is fully online and I've taught online a couple of times and I actually really like the format so this is no insult to the potential of online education whatsoever I do think that human beings still thrive with some kind of actual physical sensory experience of things. Um, and I think when it comes to digital research, it can be a helpful quick way to get them going on this, to actually walk them around a library and do a tour of the library that makes those connections between what they're physically seeing and how they're walking around and what they're seeing on the internet. 
So I think that's really helpful. I think for some students might not need that, but other students really do. I had multiple students after I had done this with them ask me where they go to check out books. Oh, wow. So their physical sense of the library is really like they don't have a basic map of the library in their heads. And I think that that map of the library helped a lot of them kind of link up these different things to each other in useful ways. Um, and many of them are relieved to be able to use a book because they're actually really burned out on doing every part of their lives online. Um, so I think just on a very basic human level, they're like, oh, I get to touch something. <laughs> they were really funny about the, 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 the old books that we looked at at Rare Books, right? Because these are, these are books that are a couple hundred years old. They were very like scared to touch them. Some of the books smell funny because they're very old. Um, but I think they really enjoyed the sensory experience of, even if they were kind of grossed out by it, of touching these old crumbling books and seeing the connection between sort of the human hands that created those things and their own work and what they were trying to do for their papers and all of that as well. Um, so I think this particular thing does lend itself well to actual in-person education, even though I think online education has amazing potential as well. So tell me how then, after you gave your students this, this very sensual, uh, spatial, you know, physical mm -hmm. experience, how did you then transfer that over into kind of your digital teaching and, and their digital learning? Sure. Um, yeah. So I think that everything has to be a continual learning experience. And so one of the things that I do is just repeat myself more than I did when I first started teaching. Um, and I think some of the stodgy anecdotes that we have been telling are actually really useful. So, and those are things that you can, you can explain when I'm doing a Zoom session, um, I will often drop either images or links to the physical object in the Zoom so that they know what it is that I'm talking about. So if I'm told, telling a stodgy anecdote about making mixtapes when I was a kid, I will then like, you know, drop a picture of that tape and explain a little bit about like the functionality of that thing, because I just, you can't assume that they know any of that. And it's hard for them to understand the connections you're making unless you give them a very sort of practical demo of what that actually means. Um, I also will use props when I'm zooming. So like, I will hold a book, I will show them the different parts of the book that I'm looking at. Um, and I often will kind of ask them to do physical actions with me while I'm zooming with them to make sure that it's really happening and that those connections are still being made, even though we're in this kind of digital environment. So I try to turn the digital environment physical. That sounds so weird when I'm saying it like that. Um, but I often will sort of like walk them through a dance <laughs> um, to try to get them to actually sort of have the same type of experience that I would be giving them in the library. So um, it's usually not quite as, um, as silly as this, but it is kind of like this meditation session. Like, okay, now visualize this thing. Okay, so it looks like this. And then once you've got that thing, you know, right. open it to this part of the book. But you know, I think that's really important. I mean, there, there are studies that show like in digital pedagogy, um, when you're teaching, for example, second language learners, English language learners, um, having the, you know, kind of those three-dimensional objects um, available, whether you're teaching face-to-face -face or online, is, is actually very helpful in kind of retention um, of what it is that you're talking about. And I love the idea of having these three-dimensional objects that you're showing to them, even though you're on a screen and you yourself are two-dimensional, but you're giving 
some mm-hmm. sort of kind of realistic dimension to what it is that you're doing um, while you're teaching your students. Yeah, I so yesterday I was teaching and I'm teaching a literature class this term. And I realized that I had a really silly coffee mug. <laughs> I was watching myself in Zoom and I thought, oh my gosh, I have this, it's this mug from the Guinness Brewery in Dublin. And it's got like these weird looking animals on it. And I just suddenly had this moment of self-awareness in Zoom where I thought this mug is ridiculous. So I held it up and I showed my students and I actually like turned it around so that they could see all of the ridiculous drawings on it. And I was like, I'm sorry, I have such a silly coffee mug this morning. Clearly, you know, my, my professionalism has lapsed. I was, I was joking. I was, um, and they know that I'm a very silly person. So I'm sure that they thought that that mug was completely in keeping with my personality. Um, but I think this like reminding people that like we are physical beings in a physical world, um, and beyond actually like showing them things that I'm doing, I also like often, like I was saying, kind of have them walk through actions themselves. Um, so like we have, you know, I'm teaching a literature class, they have books. I will often like have them sort of, okay, like hold up your book, turn to this page, then look back at this page, then look at the cover. Tell me what you think the relationship between these things is, you know? Um, so that I think just because you're online doesn't mean that you can't have your students doing things that are active and that are interactive. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't think that necessarily means that you can't do that. And um, extra full disclosure about my, my past experiences, I worked as a park ranger for four seasons and I did presentations in elementary schools, among other things. And so I do not use puppets with my college classes, um, but I have experience doing presentations that involve sea otter puppets, um, you know, sea stars uh, removing their stomachs so that they can dissolve clams um, and various, (laughs) (laughs) right. And so I think that my online education experience is informed by that. And that although I may not be doing things quite that silly, that sort of... um, that urge to demonstrate things and to connect with people through motion and sort of play, I would say even, is pretty strong for me, even in the digital environment. Well, so you've mentioned that you have an MFA in creative writing, which I think is awesome. I have an undergraduate degree in creative writing, um, but my master's degree is in professional writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some of uh, my literary publishing classes that I took, um, one of them, we actually had to sew a book. Oh, Um, cool. Uh, with needle and thread and the pages and stuff and and kind of think through that construction of the book so even in a graduate level um uh, or you know undergraduate level but doing these actual like physical activities um, i think can be very informative uh several times as we've been talking here today i've remembered that experience of having you know a needle and trying to push it through the pages and how many pages you know learning how many pages i could actually push a needle through um and how thick my thread needed to be and just kind of experiencing that and another thing i was thinking about was um uh in one of my master's uh creative writing classes because i did take creative writing and um uh in my master's program Mm -hmm. and you know we had to do book reviews and i did a book review of a short story collection that was very innovative you know fiction where there was like the main text on the page, but then in the margins, there was actually smaller text that kind of interacted right. with the main text. And you there could... are a bunch of medieval texts that actually do that. That's, oh, see, and that seems to me to be very modern and new, but now you're <laughs> telling me it's actually almost ancient. 
Um, yeah, there's a bunch of medieval manuscripts that actually have that kind of thing going on. And it's so it's a strong interest to me as well. Sorry, continue. No, well, and, see, and that actually adds another layer of interest to all of this for me. But, you know, the things that we think are new um, and, uh, you know, this idea of here's the words on the page and there's a margin around it. Right. And then we're mm -hmm. going to that's the rule. And, you know, we got that rule from, you know, centuries ago. Um, and then it seems that we're breaking that rule by putting stuff in the margin, but uh, no, we're not. It's been done before. Um, but to kind of show all of this to our students, I think really adds a, a kind of a depth to their, um, their knowledge, their, their acquisition of knowledge, and uh, I think really um, better positions them for understanding their place you know, in the digital world right mm -hmm. now. So how did, how did it go over with your students as you were kind of teaching them these things? Um, I, I think everything you just said is very much correct. And I, I would say that it doesn't just show them their place in the digital world. It um, shows them that they have a place in this larger sort of human intellectual effort that goes back so far, you know, like beyond what we can see in our historical record. Um, and they are so satisfied when some of these things are demystified for them. So I think I mentioned this earlier, but a few of them would just become angry if a book didn't have an index <laughs> after they found out that that, that exists. <laughs> right, right. They would just be like, oh, this lazy person didn't put an index in their book. And I was like, this is a novel. Novels don't usually have those. <laughs> But they really, um, I think that a lot of them just feel terrified when they enter the library catalog. It's this scary place of knowledge they feel like they don't have access to. Um, and I think what this does is, again, it allows them to see connections to the past in the way that we currently operate as humans. Um, but I think it also makes them feel like they can actually engage with it and that they are part of it, that they're not some outsider looking in the window at, you know, the puppies that are the library catalog that no one will let them have. Um, that's definitely not how they feel. Um, but there's, <laughs> there's a way that um, even if, you know, you cover all this stuff and somebody only notices two features of the catalog page, which considering how many things are there, that's not that much. But maybe they, they find the cite this button and they know how to make a citation on this source. Um, maybe they realize that if they click in this spot, it will show them additional things that are on the same topic. Um, maybe you show them a couple of things about narrowing their search. Um, you, I've been teaching a bunch of students how to use the Oxford English Dictionary this week. Oh, I love that. Yes. Yeah. And since, again, like these are in some cases people who are hesitant readers, I would say. Um, and you show them the Oxford English Dictionary and they're like, oh, this will tell me what this word from Jane Eyre means that I was really struggling with. And they suddenly feel like, okay, no, there's help. Like I can, I can do this thing. And it just adds a couple of tools to their tool belt, um, which is perhaps an overused metaphor, but I feel like it works really well here. Like they may still have some empty spots, but like, even if you just give them like, you know, a screwdriver and a hammer, they can do a lot of stuff with that. But that seems to be really, um, to what it is that we're you know our end goal is as instructors to give our students that sense of empowerment to bring them into the academy mm -hmm. enough so that then they can make their own way in the yeah. academy um and it seems to me like that's that's really what what you're doing yeah yeah it's really like you decode a couple of things and then they are able to keep learning on their own because they have like a they have a foothold <laughs> right know? 
Yeah, they have a few a few tools that they can use, um, and then if they keep using those tools, they'll probably happen upon a few more, or at some point they'll they'll think to themselves, "Oh yeah, I think we talked about this in that class. Isn't that the thing that does X?" You know, um, so they may not be ready for that information yet, but maybe they'll be a third year nursing student and they'll have to do a literature review and they'll have this vague memory that we covered this, and they'll be able to use that to help them. Right. You know. I, I just, I can, my, my mind is swirling right now with all the different, um, with all the potential that this has. Um, and, and it kind of, it makes me sad for my own teaching that I hadn't ever thought to do this before, but it makes perfect sense now that you've kind of explained it to us. In, in my master's program um, at, a, at a different university, I know mm-hmm. that they had a class, um, basically, you know, kind of a college skills class where they did require the students to go into the library and do like a library scavenger hunt. Yes. Um, and as you probably know, we're developing, you know, a core at SLU for all of our incoming students. And I just keep thinking that we've got to do something like this with our students. Um, we definitely should be teaching it in writing classes, but it should be something that everyone, you know, yeah. learns and, and understands this history so that they can you know, build on that for their own academic future. Um, and that that's just a basic skill that we should be teaching that I think maybe we have forgotten because a lot of us who are planning the courses already know this stuff. I'm a huge fan of library scavenger hunts. And <laughs> I think you are completely right that we have a lot of assumptions about what they already know because we know, I know that there's a checkout desk at the library. Right. I think some of my students legitimately did not know that before I had my class at the library a couple of times. And I think there's this, I don't know where people think this knowledge is going to come from, but I think a lot of, a lot of students just don't know about these resources. And once they know about them and get a little bit of support in using them, then they can take off. But they don't know what we don't tell them about. Right. Well, and for me too, I was just thinking how in my prior writing classes, I always required my students to go to the library and in their big research paper that they did, they had to have at least two books, like physical mm-hmm. books. They had to bring them to class and show me that they had gone to the <laughs> library and checked out a book. Um, but now in our pandemic environment, and, and we, you know, right. I, I'm under a belief that this is going to change the way we teach in the future. We may forever have, you know, a higher level of uh, digital pedagogy in yeah. our teaching. Um, but I think this is a good reminder that it's important to not leave that physical space out of our teaching, that this is really important and helpful in, um, in uh, our students' knowledge acquisition. Yes. Oh, for sure. I, um, so this is, this is going to sound sort of random, but I promise it's relevant. But <laughs> my students read a, a folktale about a condor who abducts a young woman in, my, in one of my classes earlier this term. And at some point, I realized that there is an Andean condor, and this is an Andean folktale. There's an Andean condor at the World Bird Sanctuary, oh. um, which is just outside of St. Louis. It's awesome. I recommend going there. <laughs> um, and so I told my students that instead of one of their reading assignments that week, they could go and visit Dorothy, the Andean condor, and send me a short thing about it. So either um, Zoom with me from the condor cage or... Um, write up some notes on the connections between the condor and the story that we'd read. Um, and they were so happy. They were so happy to do that. 
And and so excited. And a couple of them um, like Zoom bombed another section of their class <laughs> from the condor cage. And they were like, we're here with Dorothy. And I was just like, these students really want to do things that aren't online. Even if they're, you know, like sending me a video and like talking to me through Zoom, they really just want to be able to do some parts of their coursework in person, in a place with a condor. <laughs> <laughs> And the excitement level and the amount of people who chose to do that assignment, even though it honestly took them longer than the assignment that it was going to replace, um, it was just a good reminder that like they want to do things in person. <laughs> you right. know? They want to see a condor in person. And they were so funny because they kept um, making all these observations about the differences. And they were like, the condor in that story was lying. He said he couldn't scratch his own back. And Dorothy keeps scratching her own back with her beak. And like... <laughs> I don't think I've seen them. I mean, and my class has gone really well and my students have actually been really engaged. Um, but I think it was probably one of the most excited moments all term. And yeah. that really like made me think about how I do things and how much I need to incorporate that kind of learning. But isn't it wonderful when you have those moments of, oh, yes. you know, of connection <laughs> with your students? Um, a lot of my research is, you know, that what students want from an online class is those moments of connection that they have with mm -hmm. each other and with their professor. Um, for me, this um, and my research into digital pedagogy and digital um, learning, I've thought a lot about, you know, as a non-traditional student, how much I wanted to acquire skills in this area so that I could help other non-traditional students who maybe, you know, want to get that uh, a degree, an additional degree, right. um, finish their college degree that they never got before, and they can only do that in an online environment. Um, so just sitting here talking with you has made me think a lot about how can I, you know, if I am in that kind of uh, a job situation after I graduate, how can I incorporate these face-to-face you know, mm -hmm. moments, you know, for my students, asking them to go to an actual physical library, just their local library on their lunch hour or, right. and, and, and the condor moment, I, that's just blowing my mind, honestly. <laughs> I'm thinking, what, what can we do that? What can we do with that? How can we get them out into the world, you know, and make those connections, you know, in other ways? It doesn't have to, we don't have to limit ourselves only to looking at a screen and thinking about what will be effective on a screen. Yeah, no, I think that's really true. And um, there, in spite of what I've said about digital environments being very retro in many ways, um, <laughs> there there are ones that aren't as much like that. And um, one of the things I noticed, and this is this is a benefit of the pandemic, um, if there are some, is that many art museums have really stepped up their game in terms of online exhibits. So oh, yeah. another assignment that I had my students do was to look at the miniature rooms at the Chicago Institute of Art. And I wouldn't even say that their online gallery of those rooms is the best online gallery I've seen. Um, but, you know, in lieu of being able to visit an art museum, I had them look at those miniature rooms and all of the images of them that are available from that museum and talk about which room best suited one of the stories that we read and and why. So they had to do basically a close reading of the visual of this room and then connect it to some quotes from the story. Ah. Um, and I was like very excited to see how many museums were actually starting to make really good digital exhibits that that use the the, the medium of, of the internet so much better than many websites do. Um, that really kind of were reaching for a higher potential. And I was like, this could be really good for the future because I think that students can get a more sort of interactive 
um, physical feeling, like mind mapped experience, right. um, then is often true of websites right now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, it, everything's changing and hopefully, you know, changing for the better. And um, we're kind of rethinking this whole idea of, you know, the cloud and, and digital research and digital learning. So, mm -hmm. well, I know you presented uh, a lot of this information <laughs> at a conference. So uh, any possibility of a publication so that uh, other people don't have to sit and listen to us <laughs> in our goofy podcast today that maybe they can read some of uh, 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 your research and the results of um, your teaching? Possibly. Um, I think one of the challenges is that of doing um, research on teaching is that a lot of teaching papers are anecdotal. And I feel like a lot of the stuff I'm talking about here, um, it is anecdotal. It's not something where I've done a research study comparing the results of many classes. So right. to me, I think um, I could see doing a short article on this, but I think to really dive into it, I would really love to see someone, perhaps not me, um, do a more thorough research study on some of these things um, to see really how they work like across multiple classes um, to develop advice that would be relevant to many teachers and perhaps not just my own pedagogy. Um, so, so I would say, yeah, I mean, I think I am interested in talking about these things more, um, but I also would like to see more rigorous academic research on these topics to, to really thoroughly vet you know, the different strategies I've been using. So in the meantime, how do you feel about uh, myself and listeners to this podcast stealing some of your ideas? Oh, I'm perfectly fine with that. I actually, when I presented this at a, at a conference, I shared the link with everybody who came and said, feel free to uh, use this, cut it up, revise it, do whatever you feel like with it. This is definitely fair game. Um, and many of the things that I thought of I would credit to my work with librarians. So I don't really feel like I own it. I feel like it was a collaborative learning experience. My students, the librarians, myself, I don't really deserve credit. <laughs> so anyone should be able to use it. Well, in a past episode of Eloquentia Perfecta, we did discuss uh, how stealing is one of the best ways to improve your own teaching and teaching methods. So uh, I just wanted to make sure that you, uh, you didn't mind uh, if we capitalized on all of the wonderful things that you have shared with us today. That is perfectly all right with me. Again, I just, I don't feel like this is something I can say that I own at all. So please. <laughs> and even if I could, I would still want, I just want people, to, I want people to use things that are effective in their teaching. So if this is effective for people, I want them to feel free to use it. My I'm, ultimate goal is that teaching is good. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm definitely feeling, I'm just going to say that, you know, outright that this is definitely going into my next uh, teaching experience and my students' next learning experience. So I'm really, I'm really excited about this. So is there anything else that uh, in our kind of meandering conversation that you think we should have talked about but didn't? Um, I cannot think of anything. I, I actually really enjoyed where this went because there were a lot of things that came up that I think are really relevant to the topic that I wasn't necessarily folding into it as I was, you know, preparing my mind for this morning. Um, but I think that's I think that's about all the steam I have at the moment. Um, this has been great, and thank you so much. Um, I really value all of the things you had to say about this, and um, enjoyed discussing this topic with you and hearing your thoughts. I had so much fun with you this morning. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, this was great. <laughs>
involved in this podcast series, to share an assignment or tool, or to pitch an interview, please contact me at sheila.corsi at slu.edu. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina.